way home from school. And as I said, it was a small Virginia town, approximately just about inhabitants of parts of 1,500. Everyone approximately knew everyone else. And some of the good neighbors say to my mother, your son was fighting on his way from school. When I arrived home, if I got thrice in the street, certainly I assure you I got a genteel one when I arrived home. My mother, I'm not going to raise a bully. You shall not wind up in a penitentiary. Looking back now on this thing, my mother fortunately is still living. I see my mother now again being the neurotic that she was. For she herself had a very bad experience. Her father, who was more than half Indian, when she was a girl approximately around 12 years of age, killed a man with a shotgun. The old man never served a day for it because they called it justifiable homicide. So my mother was the same girl that had gone through that horroring experience. And quite naturally, she didn't want that to happen, not to her boy. So she thought, if she could break me from fighting, that maybe I would never become angry enough to kill an individual. Not realizing the things that she was doing to her boy. Later on, as I grew older, I realized that I'd gotten to the place that I had no longer the desire to defend myself. I remember on one occasion and a boy took a basketball because I had tripped him accidentally and threw it in my face and I wouldn't fight him. I don't know what I thought at that point. I know I became angry. Maybe I thought that if he could kill me, maybe he could eat me. But I say that to show you just some of the fears that I grew up with. Soon, I was introduced to high school. There again, I found that I was out of tune with my fellow classmates. Even at the dances, I had a great deal of trouble though I had taken the time to take dancing lessons, unbeknownst to my parents, because, of course, the good Baptists in those days, they didn't dance. But I can remember at the time, many times at a dance, that I would attempt, always, 
Not sometimes, but always. Secure a certain number of dances. Because I knew that if I was to ask a lady to dance with me, and she refused, there would have to be a hole in the floor. I remember one of the incidents that happened in the swimming pool. At that time, we were swimming naked. And a boy made a remark, I walked from the pool, and today I can't swim. But somewhere along in my high school career, I started to take account of myself, and I realized that I was off the beam in many ways. I played and participated in a few of the athletics, that mostly against my mother's will, because she was always the fear that football was a little too rough. Baseball was all right. The track was okay. She even went to the extent to get a good physician to sign a blank in order that I may not participate in the military activities, the cadets of the high school. Because there again, she didn't want her boy to even think of becoming a soldier. But as I said, in high school, I started to take a little inventory, and I realized that I had many, many deficiencies. But it dawned on me that regardless of all of the inhibitions and the inefficiencies that I may have possessed, that I had one tool by which I could compete. And that was my brain. I never had too much trouble in school, because I guess I've been blessed with the cousin. I don't know what it is to cram. I've never known, even in college, what it was to spend a, a continuously studying or a complete night, like many of my friends. They up all night, attempt to cram. But I realize now that the gods had been kind to me in that department, and that there I could, if not excel, I could equal my fellow man. And I believe that I used that as a whip for the remainder of my time in high school, through college, and even into my early adult life. I read extensively many books. I offered always, at all times, seeking knowledge. I guess for a long number of years, I read on an average of three to four hours each day. And thereby, I was fairly well informed. 
But getting back again to this theme of religion and God, as I understand him, of the spiritual side of life, I eventually finished school, I went into practice, and everything apparently was going along okay. My father, who was a royal, a rural physician, had moved to Washington, D.C. He built up a wonderful practice there. Aside from that, he had a mail-order medicine business going, and things were going along fairly well. In 1928, the death of my father, I don't know just what happened. I know I had a deep love for my father, much more than that that I've ever had for my mother, up to my time that I was introduced to AA. I know at times that I actually despised my mother because I held her responsible for my plight. But from the year 28 to 30, actually wasn't too bad. We apparently were able to survive the depression of 29. But in 32, things started to happen. We didn't make as much money. We had to skinch here and there, possibly to keep some of the worldly goods that we were attempting to acquire. Then we were living in Washington. Something happened to us. A dead child was given to us. This being the second child, a boy. I had great hopes, as my father had had hopes in me, that I would have amounted for something, and I had great hopes for my son. I realized that I had taken special efforts before the boy's early training, his early education. I remember as most kids, when they get into process that first fight, he ran into the house crying, and I asked him what the trouble was. He said a big boy out in the street hit me. I looked out the window, and I said, where's the big boy? He said, there he is out there. I looked out. They were about the same size. Well, I said, son, you'll have to go out. If he kills you, he certainly can't eat Because I was thinking back of my rearing, and certainly I didn't want to burden my son with the things that my mother, my mother had saddled me. And I believe to this point that he has grown, that I have been able to possibly do a fair job with him. But again, in 35, skipping a few years, 
A lot of things started to accumulate. A lot of things started to snowball. Some of the things, some of these things I was actually aware of. Others possibly were deep-seated in the subconscious. I know that at a very early age I had been introduced to alcohol, that is, the booze of the prohibition prohibition days, the corn whiskers, the moonshine, and whatnot. But I realized in 35 that I wanted a drink. I felt the need of a drink. And I can remember now, as plainly as this it was yesterday, that I'd go and steal my own whiskey. Eventually, by asked me why I was drinking alone, I lied to her under the pretense that I had a cold, that I wasn't feeling up to par. And the majority of you know the story from there on out. It certainly didn't stop there. I went on from that stage to the stage where I would bring my whiskey in the house, drink it, and hide the bottle. Then came the accumulation of bottles I had to lie again. Because they weren't mine. They belonged to my brother-in-law, who happened to be living with them. They were his thoughts. They weren't mine. I knew nothing about them. Then came the stage where I looked forward to the weekends to drink. It didn't interfere with my normal way of life. It didn't interfere with my family. It was my business. And if I chose to take a few drinks over the weekend, it was my business. But there again, it was just a matter of time when the Saturday drinking and the Sunday drinking terminated into Monday drinking. Then came the time that I had to have the morning drink. And from there on out, I had to increase the morning drink until I was drinking a half a pint to get straightened out in the morning. Then there came the time that a half a pint wasn't even sufficient to get rid of the jitters. And of course you all know what happened from there on out. I was just a prudential drunk for another day. It went from bad to worse until it got to the place that I drank daily, day in and day out. Until in 41, an incident happened that gave me a shock. A very dear friend of mine had been in the night before. He had paid me a bill that he had owed me. And on the following night, he came back and said, Jim, over our cocktails last night, I forgot to pay you for last night's prescription for my wife. I said, no, sir, you don't owe me anything. He said, yes, 
You remember? No, I didn't remember. I didn't remember subscribing anything. I don't remember giving him anything. The following morning, I went to this friend's home. He had gone to work, talked with his wife, checked the medicines was okay. But I said to buy something has to be done. It was all right for me to lose my automobile. It was all right to remember having been in a tavern or at a party at 11 or 12 o'clock. Got home at 4, not remembering where I'd been, what had transpired. Those were bad enough, but this was too much. I knew then that I had to do something about my drink. And it was at this point that I sought the aid of psychiatry. That I signed myself into a hospital, a mental institution. It was at this time that I sought help from the clergy. But none of them could give me the answer. The psychiatrist had told me that, that I was basically dishonest. That I may have known. I may not have been cognizant of it at the time. The clergy told me that I was too far away from God. But they couldn't tell me how to find him. The general practitioners already said that I drank too much. I should moderate. Not one of my good friends had told me that I would have to leave it alone completely, that I couldn't drink it at all. They didn't know. They only knew possibly a little something about the dipsomaniac, the individual that drinks periodically. Up me over a bench. But the latter part of 41, after I realized that there's no help for me, I came to the conclusion that maybe my environment was responsible. Most of my friends were drinking possibly much too much. I wasn't the only one that was actually in trouble. There were many others. Many of us would go to parties and weren't able to drive home. I realized also that I had to close my office. I had no other alternative than to secure a job. So I went to one of my good friends who secured a position with the Forest Service Service Region. I worked there a while and I drank, I believe, more because I had a steady salary. All I had to 
do was to put in this seven hours or eight hours. The rest of the time was mine to drink. I was assured of the salary. Then came the time, I think around in September of 41, that the full service region was decentralized to Winston-Salem. That was joyous news to me. I remember I went home and told my wife, if I we have this thing licked, I'm going to Winston-Salem. Winston-Salem is a dry city. I won't be able to secure whiskey there. I'm the drunk and I'm sincere. I'm sincere. I had lived in a town where I could get whiskey after hours. I had known practically every bootlegger within five miles of my residence. I don't know why it didn't dawn on me that there'd be some bootlegging in North Carolina, but it didn't. I said, why we got this list? All oh, this to it. We'll meet new friends. There will be a new environment. And I will be a different man. Because remorse at this point had just about beat me to death. Not only had I mistreated my friends, my home, the agony that I had brought upon my children, the mental agony that I had thrust upon my wife, of course, at this point, she no longer would go out to social gatherings because I had winched her out, and you know what I mean, to all of her friends every time I got drunk. And if it wasn't that, I had to be called by to the car and beg someone to drive this drunk home. And when I got home, she can't lift me out of the car, and there Sunday morning, if it should happen to be Saturday night in front of the house, and a drunken stupor in the automobile. So long since she had, had developed sense enough not to go anywhere with me. But at this point in my drinking, she was my worst enemy. And not only would abuse her, but I would fight her. I think she's a wonderful woman to have put up with it as long as she did. Of course, eventually she got tired of it. She, she did something about it. But she was long-suffering, anyhow. But uh, we're going to Winston-Salem. Everything is going to be all right. We're going to start life anew. We're going to make these new friends. And we are going to live once again as human beings. I went to Winston, I stayed sober about a month or six weeks because I went on ahead, secured a home, beautiful house, big eight-room house, beautiful garden, little swimming pool. And I said, I know Vi and the children will really enjoy this. I couldn't do this thing whole hog. I refused to drink whiskey, but I did drink beer, plenty of it. 
But for some reason, I've never been able to drink enough beer to actually affect me too much. Well, after about six weeks, I rode by and suggested that uh, it was about time that she and the kids make some tracks further south. And it happened to be just around Christmas time. It never dawned on me that uh, she needed some money. Though I had mailed a little token home possibly a couple of weeks prior to this. Well, I mailed her a lousy twelve dollars. Twelve dollars. Not for incidental, but to bring our Christmas supply of liquor. We must celebrate at Christmas. So the good wife, instead of coming to Winston-Salem, she wrote me a very beautiful letter stating that she had secured a job in Washington and that she thought for the time being that it was best that she remain there for the sake of the children and their schooling. And as much as they were familiar with the school system there in the district. And you can imagine what happened then. I drank for far less reason, but that in my mind was a genuine reason. And I drank more than I had ever consumed in Washington. It was there that I started to even hemorrhage. You know that I lost a great deal of time from work because of my drunken sprees. But I made some good friends there. I drank to the point in Winston-Salem that I was reinvestigated in the government service. But like an alky, we're a shrewd group of individuals. We know the right people, and we apparently do just the right things at the right time. You know that investigation came up? Just fine. A whole lot of people were made liars of that were telling the truth. Then eventually came the time that I could no longer stay in Winston. I had to come back to Washington. I transferred. My wife and I went back together. We're no more at this point of paying notes on a few pieces of property. We're now reduced to a room and a kitchen. We cook in this room. We sleep in this room. We entertain in this room. We're reduced to that at this point. She's working two of our children, a farm house to her mothers in the country, and she's attempting to do something for the elder girl that is with her. Once again, we're going to lick this thing together. And once again, I was a complete failure. 
was at this point in July of 44 that we finally decided with the aid of the district attorney or commonwealth as you call it that I should go and live with my mother and that I should not molest my wife under any circumstance. This thing actually grieves me because I'm still deeply in love with my wife. But I'm forced into this thing. Until eventually, I guess, I got in some pretty serious trouble about it. I guess I brooded about it a little too much. But I'm an alcoholic. I'm not able to face life as the average individual. When men lose their wives by the thousands. They're able to give them up. They're able to substitute something else. I wasn't. Even though I wasn't a fit husband, and I knew that. But I still felt that she was giving me a raw deal by leaving me out in the world all by myself. Nothing but a little kid. So I was 40 years of age. Somewhere in the month of November, I had a payday on the 23rd, the 25th of November being my birthday. Of course, I had to celebrate and I couldn't go back to work the 24th and I had to take off the 25th because that was my birthday and I had to celebrate. But this happened on the 24th. I don't know again how I arrived at this destination, whether it was by cab, whether I crawled, walked, or by streetcar. But I remember meeting my wife on the corner of 8th Seville, just leaving this home, this room, this gas stove. This was the cop. The following morning at the arrangement in the court, a very stern judge who is now deceased was presiding over the case, and for some reason or other, he turned to my wife and he said, Madam, what have you to say? And she said, Judge, Your Honor, my husband is a fine man. But I really think he's gone nuts. I think he's gone crazy. He said, If that is your opinion, I will abide by it. I will commit this man to a hospital for mental observation for 30 days. Instead of the hospital, I was thrown in the city jail and I remained there. I think the closest thing that I saw to the society was an intern that came and took a Wasserman test. Approximately on the 25th or the 23rd, I believe, of December, I was brought back into court. My good wife had decided, through the efforts, I guess, of my mother and some of my relatives, 
She decided anyhow that uh, she didn't want to prosecute me. So, of course, the case was now passed, and I was released. Again, I became a hero. My wife had bid me this great favor. I felt once again that I should have to leave, and I did. They had the transportation going from the city of Washington to Seattle, Washington, and the Duport West. I decided that that was a long way from Washington, D.C. But at least if I couldn't do anything about my problem there, certainly I would be a long way from my people. Because at this stage, I believe that I had lost just about all of my faith I just about reached the point of desperation where I actually just didn't give a darn about what happened to him. If death would have come in those days, I would have been glad. I didn't have the guts to take my own life. I gradually worked my way back to a steel mill in Clarence, Pennsylvania. An incident happened there in Clarence that made me very ashamed of myself. And once again, I thought of my home and of my family. Even that a part of March to the 1st of April of this year, 1945, Easter came. And prior to Easter, I had made up my mind that I was going to send some wife money to my wife and a night trip for my baby daughter at Easter time. But there's one thing that I hadn't taken into account, that I had to pass a liquor store after I got my pay envelope before I reached the post office. Well, I never got that check. My daughter never got that Easter check. But shortly thereafter, I went, I made another couple of weeks, and then I came back home. And there's where I found my sponsor. Where I found a God that I can understand. In AA, I learned that God is not up there, not an old gray man with a beard, with a stick to beat us every time that we make this mistake, but he is a loving God, that I can talk with him that I can rely on him, that every day when I reach the crossroads, that I can know that he is there, that if I have become mentally confused, 
And I know that he is there. And I know that whatever my problem might be, that it can never be larger than the God that I understand. It's a beautiful thing to come in AA, to get the basic knowledge so we realize that we must be honest with ourselves and sincere. But somewhere along the line, something else creeps in. And we know for ourselves that behind all of the miracles that we see transformed in AA is a kind and loving God. As it was said here in this convention, that he will never leave us, that certainly we shall have to leave him. And God bless you all.